Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Anna Fishzon, and today it's my great pleasure to be speaking with Lawrence Rickles about his brand new book, The Psycho Records, uh, Wallflower Press, which I think is an imprint of uh, Columbia University Press. You can go to their Mm -hmm. website (laughs) Um, from 2016. So, uh, Larry, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, I'd like first uh, to briefly introduce you. Uh, Lawrence Rickles is a legendary film, media, and literary theorist. He's professor in art and theory at the Academy of Fine Arts, Karlsruhe. He is the author of many other books, uh, Aberrations of Mourning from 1988, The Vampire Lectures, 1999, The Case of California, 2001, Nazi Psychoanalysis, 2002, The Devil Notebooks, 2008, Ulrika Ottinger, The Autobiography of Art Cinema, from 2008, I Think I Am, Philip K. Dick, 2010, and Germany, A Science Fiction, 2015. So um, uh, just to say even you know more about your, maybe some more biographical information, uh, after completing... Uh, his PhD in German literature and German studies at Princeton in 1980. I said the year I wasn't going to, but Larry decided to pursue a master's degree in clinical psychology at Antioch University, Santa Barbara, completing that in 1994. Um, then he, com- uh, he completed his residency in psychotherapy also in Santa Barbara from uh, 1990 until 2011. Uh, you taught at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where um, uh, you were a professor of comparative literature in German and also uh, taught in the art department and film and media studies. Finally, um, as is evident, I think, from even a cursory reading of, of uh, Larry's work, uh, he's very influenced by Freud, uh, Winnicott, and Klein, and uh, weaves masterful kind of readings of these authors and their insights into analyses of uh, slasher, splatter, and other horror films throughout the book we'll be discussing today. So, um, Larry, maybe you can begin by telling us a bit about the prehistory of the book, uh, so to speak. How did you develop an interest in, on the one hand, horror films, and on the other hand, psychoanalysis? And uh, do these interests emerge simultaneously? My interest in psychoanalysis is older than um, some of these pop cultural pursuits that I picked up when I moved to California and started teaching there. Um, At some point in adolescence, uh, I was uh, uh, curious about problems of mourning. And um, at least back then, I soon discovered that really only Freud Um, spoke about this problem in any depth. So um, I became uh, kind of a Freudian and then caught up with that, Mm -hmm. that passing um, investment over the years. Um, So when I moved to uh, California, I had to figure out a way to combine my interest in psychoanalysis with um, the interest that the students uh, brought to class. Um, I'm not so um, I'm not such a strategist that I, you know, came up with the best combination right away. <laughs> was really just trying to survive. <laughs> but then I, but then I inherited this class. I, uh, film studies in those days was a kind of colony of literary departments, mm. and so I had I had pretty easy access to teaching there. And um, one day I inherited the horror class, the horror film class. And I had noted for some time, as I was trying to um, check out my environment, that um, 
slasher films were very big. I think um, uh, Friday the 13th, too, was playing at the local theater. And uh, I was intrigued and I looked at it. And that was when I decided that I would make the horror film class be about the um, slasher films that were current back then in the 80s. Mm. Were, this, um, were the students surprised to, to get Freud in the bargain? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it took a long time for that. I mean, you know, in dog years, it took a long time for that to go down. It really wasn't until um, I found a connection to occult horror with um, the vampire, which was then a separate class, that I finally conquered um, the student body. Mm-hmm. And there's something more upbeat and compelling, I guess, about talking about vampirism in terms of mourning mm-hmm. along the lines of um, Freud's discussion of ghosts and totem and taboo mm-hmm. than, you know, um, running up against the psychopathic violence and in slasher and splatter movies. There's only at that point there was seemed to be only so much I could say <laughs> about it. But then the English school of psychoanalysis which actually comes somewhat later in my um, development. Mm-hmm. Um, I've really been closely reading Winnicott and Klein for under 10 years. Um, hmm. It's the English School of Psychoanalysis that brought me um, uh, to a point of breakthrough in the legibility of psycho horror, and that's what um, encouraged me to go back to this book that's at least as old as the vampire lectures in terms of its being based on transcripts of tape recordings of my lectures in the undergraduate class. Um, so I went back finally just a few years ago to this um, uh, this old project and was able to update it finally and put it to rest, I hope. So Psycho Records is this project. It's it's your it's your lectures essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's how it began. I mean, it's changed considerably. Mm. Um, As I mentioned, also through the intervention of the English school. Yeah, there's quite a bit of Um, Winnicott. And then, yeah, Uh yeah, no, I I owe a lot to him. And, um, you know, I I think I also mentioned in the book that for a long time I thought whatever I had to say, I had kind of ironically already included in the sidelines of the case of California. So, um, I didn't really feel that I, I needed even to return to it. But then later on, I had um, uh, approached the topic of psychopathy in Germany as science fiction mm. um, and, and used Winnicott and Klein then, but especially Winnicott, to um, uh, in terms of uh, um, a certain science fiction plotting in um, uh, American science fiction that keeps on uh, returning to the issue of uh, psychopathic violence, in other words, the opposite of empathy in post-war worlds. And I started reading that as the itinerant of Germany after World War II. Yeah, I'm sorry, we're having a little so, bit of audio. Um, after oh, that... Yeah, hold on. Hello? Okay. Okay. All right. Yes. Go ahead. Keep going. You were you were in and out just for a second, but please keep going. Okay. Um, I was just um, saying that what made it real, what made the Psycho Records finally really possible was the work I did in Germany as science fiction, talking about the more historical problem of the integration of Germany after World War II. Um, which I did through tracking um, figurations of empathy and psychopathy in post-war worlds in the um, projected future um, in American science fiction. Mm. Yes, one of so, the things... Um, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, go on, I'm sorry. No, I just remembered your... I, I love what you said about... Uh, it's really, it really comes out of Winnicott and his writings about adolescence and delinquency after the mm-hmm. Second World War, where you say that you know some of this literature really makes one realize that we all have a brush with psychopathy as teenagers. And so we can uh, maybe uh, it, it creates this kind of viewing experience of psychopaths because uh, there are potential doubles. It's like the, the life not led or so, as you put it right, uh, absolutely. there, but for the grace of the good object, go I, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, <clears throat> that was very, 
I hadn't thought about it that way before. Let's put it this way. <laughs> yeah. So I, I developed um, Winnicott's insistence that adolescence is that which we grow out of into the notion that adolescence also serves as a kind of inoculation mm. over and against psychopathic violence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let, let's talk about uh, a little bit since you've brought up World War II and, and how this changed our, um, you know, uh, Hitchcock's uh, psycho for a minute. Let's focus on that because mm-hmm. you talk you call um, and what you call the psycho effect. So here we have like the theme of, you know, mother son merger with Norman Bates, of course, uh, kind of straddling psychosis and psychopathy or or maybe i misunderstood that but i I thought that's absolutely that's absolutely correct um because the the word psycho is so enigmatic i mean mm. is the psycho a psychotic or does it um address the psychopathic violence that's obviously rampant in the genre and i argue that um psychopathy remains the big unknown um i would also probably with this, with the exception of Winnicott, it's really the um, failure of interpretation in psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. the limit of psychoanalytic hermeneutics. Um, and in mass culture, popular culture, we see that psychosis, which um, may not be all that treatable, but is certainly um, uh, legible um, uh, after um, Freud's Schreber case study, um, that um, uh, the pop, the audience popularly also had the sense of psychosis that threw the admixture of psychosis into the um, enigmatic problem of psychopathic violence, uh, a kind of um, hold was granted the audience. <laughs> One was able to understand um, the mother problem, for mm-hmm. example, or the melancholic retention span. Um, which allowed the audience to get past um, the sort of Ed Gein <laughs> uh, violence um, that was otherwise otherwise pressing forward in this new genre. So you would even say it enabled a, an empathy toward Norman? Yes, yes, something like that. I would. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A yeah, curious I mean... new kind of empathy. You know? <laughs> well, it is interesting. There is a fascination with psycho uh, psychopaths, serial killers now. Uh, there's a. It seems that um, with Dexter and all of these kinds of Dexter is is that that's over though, right? I'm I'm very behind I, in my. Yeah, no, I don't know either. <laughs> but it was it, it was at the same time as True Blood, which is interesting. Yeah, well, well okay. I want to. I do want to get to that, but uh, just to stick uh, to <laughs> Psycho for just a little while longer. So there's the. Uh-huh. Also, you discuss the shower scene, of course, uh, which becomes a sort of defining. Um, defining moment and point of reference actually for future horror films and then mm. maybe even sort of previous ones, après coup, you know, it's like, right. That's what I, I, um, that's how this project developed. There was a point when I, um, decided that the force of the psycho effect, which by which I mean the impact of the shower scene mm. was such that it, it, um, also claimed, um, by its recoil earlier, uh, horror films as mm. rehearsals of the effect. Um, so y- yes, what I call the psycho effect, this is not a, really another reading of Hitchcock's psycho. I mean, there is a reading in the book, but it's not uh, the foundation. It's rather how a, a single um, scene could um, uh, prove traumatic and influential um, and yet also um, pose the problem prospect of a working through uh, in the course of several decades because hmm. it did arguably vanish uh-huh. or was displaced so considerably that it's hard to um, uh, see the continuity. And in the last chapter, I argued that uh, psychopath violence hits the screen again, but no longer under secular conditions, but via uh, multiple references to the devil and um, the infernal aegis of evil, uh, which mm-hmm. is a different, a different treatment. Hmm. Do you, do you connect any of this uh, these thematics to um, a kind of post World War II uh, trauma or or um, attempts to mourn? Because you, 
I mean, yeah. I mean, is there is there a particular uh, are there particular affects or or, or narratives that these uh, the shower scene enables? Because you do talk about how in horror, the horror in horror was used to be prior to the war uh, natural disasters, or that was more common, and then it became the horror became more about like psychopathy or or psychosis. Right. No, there's a direct connection to World War II, something I don't go into in the book, um, but I can just mention it in passing. It's hard to um, to know a whole lot about um, Hitchcock's work on the concentration camp documentary mm. after World War II. I think Wilder inherited it, if it was the, the same movie, in fact. But he, in fact, um, did spend some time editing the material and contributing to that documentary. So there's that connection, but there's also the connection within his own oeuvre between a film like Rope, which um, um, is the as a strange reversal of what he achieved in the um, shower scene, um, the absolute absence of editing cuts um, hmm. in the long one or two takes of that film, um, which is then reversed but also preserved in the um, tour de force editing of the shower scene. But I also, um, what I do underscore in the book is that Hitchcock came from um, an apprenticeship to German cinema um, before the war, um, where the themes of doubling and horror and even serial killing uh, were already prevalent, such that Siegfried Krakauer you know, writes in his book about these German expressionist films in some sense being connected in advance via a kind of teletype um, with the political um, uh, events that followed in Germany. <laughs> so he, um, he was trained there in this um, school of cinema and um, a new German um, at least enough that he could uh, speak to his wife in German when the daughter wasn't supposed to understand. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, he um, he must have known that the shower scene, which he sometimes um, um, uh, whimsically refers to as the bathtub scene, <laughs> that the shower scene does reverberate with the German word and tradition of shower, which of course is horror. Mm -hmm. Gothic horror, for example. Um, so yes, he he um, he uh, built all of that um, prehistory and momentum, I think, into that scene—a scene that was inspired by the book that was the fictionalization of the Ed Gein um, atrocities uh, in the Midwest. Can you just say so, two words about uh, Ed Gein? Because I don't know if our audience, if everybody knows the reference. Right, right. He's one of the, um, I mean, he's obviously not the first, but one of the, certainly the most, the first really famous case of um, um, psychopathic violence to um, hit the headlines after World War mm. II. And um, getting back actually to the film that, uh, Hitchcock contributed to, but which um, uh, was completed um, uh, by other directors. Um, but in that film, I don't know if you ever saw that early documentary, that there's a certain emphasis on Ilse Koch, hmm. who was one of the um, uh, commandants to whom uh, the making of um, uh, human uh, lampshades was attributed. Mm. But anyway, the, um, Ed Gein was a close reader of, of sensational accounts of her atrocities and um, was applying um, that um, uh, information down to details in his macabre um, um, uh, work with corpses. Mm. Um, he, in fact, became a uh, a murderer later in his spree, but what he essentially did after his mother's death was to redecorate his home with corpse parts that he dug up in the cemetery. Right. And that gives us that taxidermy theme that keeps on recurring yes. in the, in the, um, in the genre. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's like in silence of the limbs. I mean, you know. mm -hmm. so do you think that there's a, at least in the immediate 
year in the years you know post post World War Two that these that you know treating these themes was a way of trying to understand or get some insight or just maybe even work through some of the um, the Nazi violence or or just the fact that people kind of participated uh, or at least let let it happen you know. I don't I think, um, I mean, again, I think there's a closer um, mm. uh, link between uh, the science fiction themes I pursued in the book, in the, the book that uh, appeared earlier, mm-hmm. um, and um, the um, political and historical details of um, post-World War II, World War II and post-World War II. But I do think... Um, that it brings into focus, as you um, mentioned, the the proximity to psychopathic violence. Um, that um, the psycho is our potential double, and that it's a violence we have to deal with on various at various levels. Mm. And mm. some of those levels, however, you know, individual moviegoer would probably be hard-pressed to link those levels or themes back to World War II. It doesn't stop us from doing that, but uh, I'd say some of the themes, for example, would be um, how does uh, the survivor relate to um, uh, the murderer, for mm-hmm. example? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the issue of survival is pressing because Marion precisely doesn't survive. Um, and so the... Uh, um, the genre, the subgenre, um, just for the sake of innovation, had to begin nominating survivors. Um, but what is the relationship of the survivor to the, the violence? Like in the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the verdict is one remains chained to what one saw. Uh, only in Halloween, I argue, that you begin to see um, survival um, separated out from an, an equation with, with killing the killer, um, so that survival in its own right um, is something that can be affirmed, <laughs> um, and not simply um, you know, within a, a grim dialectic with the crime itself. Um, so I'm just saying that different aspects of um, living on after uh, the, uh, the the traumatic work but in split off ways um, mm-hmm. as isolated themes mm-hmm. um, that we try to integrate, but uh, an obvious um, reflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. Be- before we talk more about the content of the book, I, I actually want to ask you a question about the writing uh, because mm-hmm. um I mean, it's interesting that these were lectures, so I guess that adds another dimension here. But I, I you know, I found your style uh, quite, quite remarkable, actually. And uh, it's very, it's very dense and just for, for our audience out there um, and poetic. And there's a lot of uh, wordplay and punning and, you know, metaphor. And I mean, every sentence feels like a paragraph. It's that it's so rich. So. I'm just curious <laughs> if you've always written that this way or does it come easily to you? Is this something that you work on or just sort of happens? I would I mean, wordplay, that's, you know, that's uh, my literary bent, I guess. But <laughs> the kind of condensed version um, that you're referring to comes out of my book, The Case of California. Mm. And there, for the first time, I, um, I really... Uh, uh, set myself the experiment of bringing together or juxtaposing um, sort of Germanic theorizing, like Adorno's philosophy, and the teen idiom of California. So I think the Psycho Records is still within that um, tradition. I mean, that's what it owes to being on location. It tries to bring adolescent group psychologies into the fold of psychoanalytic um, theorization. Mm. So you're, you're playing with their language too, or something. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm trying to, trying to. Uh (laughs) I'm just so unfamiliar with their language, apparently that I didn't notice. Well, 
Well, some of the some <laughs> of the language is even part of horror films. Uh, um, right. Yeah. Um, uh, both occult and secular horror. There's the tradition of the so-called groaner. Have you heard about that? No. <laughs> In other words, some of my puns are really, really bad, like the ones about <laughs> um, dad and dead. That would be considered a groaner. <laughs> okay, I think. <laughs> but I, but, but I don't mind. I don't mind risking the occasional groaner. Plus, that's recognizable too. Um, not that my audience is comprised. Of adolescence, but probably they all did spend time in adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, yeah. Okay, I see. I see. Some now it's becoming clearer. So, um, okay. Uh, another question. Um, you you discuss, uh, yeah, you discuss a lot of these like slasher splatter. I think I'm getting the picture about what's the differences between slasher and splatter. I think I guess splatter is just more. It's just gorier. Is gory or a word? It's more gory, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that's enough. Okay. I mean, it's the one that begins to border on cannibalism, for example. So uh, it opens up the whole feast of violence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so you, you, you discuss these films from the 70s and 80s, and there are certain themes that really uh, emerge or that you highlight. So I'm just going to – I'm going to maybe um, kind of bring – some of these themes out and maybe you can talk about them and why they're important or the function that they serve, uh, both, uh, you know, diegetically and maybe, I don't know, just maybe link it to something sociocultural out there. So masks is, um, masks are, are a big theme. Uh, it's, it, and tied norm. I think you've, you've tied masks to, uh, shame and guilt substitution Mm -hmm. is another one. Survival, you've mentioned, but also the couple and the community, or the couple versus the, you know, as, as mm-hmm. separating from the community, uh, mourning, inability to mourn trauma, and and also um, a big one is uh, separation and and the cut, or you know, one can one can say from parental control, but not necessarily just the kind of maybe uh, individuation as well. So it's very much part of this teen splatter genre, it seems, um, mm-hmm. which I think. In some, sometimes really quite explicitly uh, is a negotiation of this separation, or at least this is like a sub theme in in a lot of these films. It dep- depending where one um, um, enters mm. the uh, the genre or subgenre, so like around Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth. I'm thinking of my childhood. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're right. right. <laughs> <laughs> then that, that's what I know. Right, those <laughs> Halloween. But there, but there, you have to imagine the kids in the movie theater mm. because they went there like going to a kind of group therapy session. I mean, they were <laughs> doing together in the theater what what later um, a perhaps smaller group wrapped around the TV or VCR began to do at home or could do at home, which is something that Scream picks up on. Um, much of that film is organized around the the in-group viewing of Halloween mm. that's playing on the VCR. So um, what's being negotiated there is um, the tension between the group and the couple. Um, because in those films, especially Friday the 13th, uh, um, what the group, what, when it, what is discussed in the group therapy is what are the um, triggers for the violence. So um, a certain kind of um, activity is not allowed, which doesn't mean that one, one learns booze in watching Friday the 13th, but one um, identifies um, uh, uh, the hot spots of the interaction um, with the parental couple. Um, as I tried to argue, the group <clears throat> is caught between two couples, the parental couple that's um, considered out of it anyway, not just off limits, <laughs> but out of it. And then the future couple um, that they will more or less inevitably form um, uh, uh, against um, the, the group bond. Um, inevitably, if only because the group has no reproducing plans of its own. Um, so until technology helps out, usually mm-hmm. um, some kind of pairing occurs um, to continue with the story. 
Um, but the the group that one imagines watching Friday the 13th is that group between the two couples oh, um, uh-huh. um, reading um, between the lines of the those two um, couple imperatives. Mm-hmm. So, and it's different, and I think with um, Psycho, there of course the um, separation, individuation, um, is tracked back more classically um, to the separation or non-separation from the mother, right? Yeah, and an earlier engagement or disengagement. So um, maybe what you see in the course of this subgenre is that the audience. Um, gradually gets a little older and a little older (laughs) (laughs) until in Scream they're really um, 20 to maybe even early 30 year olds remembering their adolescence Hmm. Um, so we reach that point that Winnicott talks about that what's so great about adolescence for all its turbulence is that you know it ends (laughs) (laughs) his finitude is what's best about it (laughs) okay um gotcha so what about uh what do we make of this um mourning or inability to mourn because one of the things that i um maybe i'm wrong about this but it feels to me that zombie films for example and the theme of the undead I mean, I guess we have that earlier, but this this zombie uh, in the form of the zombie, the undead in the form of the zombie is uh, becomes popular again or if it ever or just becomes popular for the first time, perhaps in the 90s or, or, or 2000s. It feels like this. It really bloomed this, this subgenre in the right. or am I am I off a little bit on the, my decade? I they're all the same. They're all blurred together. What, was it the early two thousands? Was it the? It was. It was more. It was more of a sporadic thing. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, with Romero, for example. But then at one point, it absolutely dominated um, the cinema, largely because it was looping through those video games hmm. um, that uh, benefited from what is fundamental to zombie entertainment, namely that you. Uh, have a kind of thrill-a-kill relationship to um, destroying the dead. Mm. So um, uh, within the context of that game, I think the the thrill factor um, was always very strong. What's surprising is that um, rather late um, in film history, uh, zombieism dominated the screen so completely. And I argue something that's obvious that it has something to do with 9 mm-hmm. um, which was um, interrupted then by uh, Obama's um, election, which is mm-hmm. when, I argue, um, vampirism returns. It becomes possible to identify with the undead, um, to have a more complicated relationship to mourning, hmm. um, not just this, um, you know, hunting of zombies, the hunting of the um, once dead and making them twice dead, once and for all. Mm-hmm. Is that when True um, Blood? That was the first season. True, of yeah, True Blood? yeah, yeah, yeah. All uh, True Blood and um, Buffy. Oh no, that was early. No, that's earlier. Yes, yeah, but um, uh, Twilight. Oh, twi- Twilight, Twilight. <laughs> they all they they're all pretty much from from that same uh, period that um, um. Uh, led to an alternation then between zombie um, pictures and and vampire fictions, but not just an alternation. It was kind of a, a shakeup of the horror genre in general, which is probably how Dexter um, mm. happened. It also re-released the questions of um, uh, psycho violence um, that that TV show um, <laughs> then addressed. <clears throat> You know, you, you talk about, uh, you link, well, you, you talk about race throughout here and there, but uh, can you say something about the way that True Blood dealt with race? I mean, I've heard, I have some friends who are, you know, film theorists, film scholars, and they talk about uh, how, you know, True Blood was so queer. I mean, maybe you can say something about that too, but um, they talk, they actually speak less about race. So I'd I like to hear your your thoughts on that. To well, the degree that these, these vampires are a kind of microcosm, social microcosm, or microcosm of the nation, rather. Maybe. 
Um, it's certainly um, the utopian um, and mm. even literal-minded projection of integration. Mm-hmm. So um, if you <laughs> look at uh, True Blood, uh, once the vampires are introduced as real, um, as possible neighbors, all kinds of um, fictional figures want to be included, and not just the usual occult sidekicks like werewolves, but also maenads, all sorts of fantasy figures, um, uh, shapeshifters. Anyway, from different genres <laughs> is my mm. point. Mm-hmm. So that what um, what was so, um, yeah, again, turbulent about um, True Blood was the absolute blending and inclusion of um, not just social stereotypes, but even the figures of um, even the fictional figures hailing from genre that were considered almost opposed in the past. (laughs) I mean, you never mixed up vampirism and fantasy really before. (laughs) Um, So um, that's what's striking there. I think the reason people um, remember the gay theme as, um, as, uh, subsuming other themes is that one of the lead um, African-American characters was also gay and ran some kind of club or all sorts of um, minority vampire interests <laughs> mm. crossed over, met and crossed over. Mm-hmm. But um, True Blood does continue um, what would otherwise be identifiable as a political integration um, which began really with the Blade films. I mean, to my mind, that's really the first uh, vampire franchise um, that put an African-American body in the foreground. Uh, that was also one of the first uh, vampire films to uh, look at vampires as fully um, sexual, um, genitally-centered um, bodies. Whereas before, um, uh, vampires were um, relegated to a kind of perversion and at best uh, could be redeemed by psychoanalytic readers who insisted that all of that was a displacement away from genital sexuality that was being somehow disguised. Uh Uh But um, everything changes then when when, um, in True Blood, for instance... Um, the vampires start having regular genital sex, and the um, the biting um, is some kind of um, foreplay, and not really, <laughs> um, you know, a, 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 a vital investment. Um, and one thing that happens is that all those themes that were um, uh, included in the condensation of the uh, vampire image are now. Um, separate issues like the issues in society, perhaps, to be addressed and redressed. Um, so um, perversion is no longer something um, innate in um, vampiric sexuality, in other words, in sexuality, mm-hmm. but is now a separate um, group somehow um, that can be accepted and in that sense both integrated and kept at a certain distance. <laughs> so Always when the norm becomes more um, inclusive um, and extends further, one has to be a little wary of what's, what edge or margin is being lost. Um, and um, I think what was in danger of being lost, I don't want to say that it was lost, is um, a kind of uh, intrapsychic um, um, corner on um, the margin, on uh, marginal experience, and ultimately on ambivalence that um, vampirism had represented and carried forward until some turning point when um, it was decided that um, they would be uh, integrated as sexual bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. You know, it also makes me think politically about uh, queer politics and the shift toward uh, gay marriage and queer adoption and, you know, this kind of attempt to integrate, you know, certain kinds of queers, maybe 
uh, white or, or at least, um, you know, people willing to have quote families, you know, um, this kind of within, within this idea of citizen representative citizenship or the family. So in a way, absolutely. I can, yeah. I, true blood is and that's kind explicitly of thematized. Mm. Yeah. It's not only symptomatic, it's explicitly thematized in the first year. I only watched the okay. first year because that is. was our forum assignment. Okay. A confession. I have never watched it. I think I have some kind of bad. insight, but it's actually the most, it's like front and center of <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, but in the first year that becomes a theme, there are certain vampires that, that um, mm. uh, live outside of um, society, and they are gay vampires, I think. Mm-hmm. And they um, uh, they won't be integrated, and so and they are kind of condemned to um, ostracism, <laughs> double oh. death by all parties. Oh. So I mean, yeah, the to be integrated, a sexually. Um, uh, genitally centered regular sex. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> no, no perversion. It's okay to know perverts that are couplified next door, and so on and so forth. It just creates a whole a whole new map mm-hmm. for um, for including vampirism or whatever we can call it now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's, let's move on from vampires to serial killers or, and their vicissitudes <laughs> because, uh, um, you know, I, I, I was really struck by what you said, actually not, not so much about, well, I was thinking about serial killers or, or, or these psychopathic killers and motives and, you know, what, if you could chart a little bit, you know, how they changed, if they changed, but, also related to that, uh, I, it was your discussion of, um, you know, like these crime shows that have appeared, like CSI, Las Vegas, or whatnot, and and comparing them to Columbo, for example, you know, which is, he's so quaint. But Columbo, you point out, was this, um, you know, he was part psychoanalyst. He'd actually talk, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. and talk to people and figured, you know, interpreted and <laughs> mm-hmm. analyzed. And, and these CSI guys are just, I don't know what they are. They're like forensics experts who they just, they just have this belief in science and, um, everything is about anatomy and dissection and, uh, but not. Right. But anyway, not this. Not not nothing here is like about affect or psyche, or maybe there is something, well, and I'm just. Well, what gets displaced? Um, I mean, the the um, what shall I say? The unconscious um, aspect, so crucial to Colombo's understanding of crime, gets displaced to problems the team uh, members are having in their own lives. So suddenly, if there's mm. a show about um, uh-huh. you know child abuse or whatever. Then you, in in little scenes in CSI, you find out that the different women have been having problems with the custody of their child or mm. whatever. It just goes around the block. <laughs> so in a way, it's more privatized. But uh, yeah, it's so interesting. So why, yeah, why does this happen? Do you have a a kind of theory about it? Well. Um, it's certainly a uh, reformatting of the relationship to crime. I mean, Colombo mm. is a late arrival of the master sleuth, mm-hmm. um, the anal- analyst who deals with crime one-on-one, <laughs> um, more or less. So you have a, a group formatting um, of um, crime solution in CSI, which is accompanied, importantly, by a new trust in um verifiable scientific data. Right. Um, and I link that in my final chapter, for better or worse, to the um, uh, establishment of uh, DNA um, evidence, <laughs> uh, which, um, you know, began through the testing for paternity. So uh, the first um, famous case of um, DNA testing uh, used to identify a criminal was a case in which uh, a father was also identified as the um, incestuous abuser of his daughter in mm-hmm. all in one movement. So for me, it's an important um, dis- dislodgement of the father as the figure of um, abstraction, ambiguity, mm-hmm. adoption, what have you. 
Um, because the one thing that is verifiable now is paternity. <laughs> I think it, I think a side effect of DNA testing is even that maternity turns out to be less <laughs> uh, <laughs> certain in terms of testing, <laughs> which would explain the group, which would explain, explain the group formatting, I think, because uh-huh. I think the group is always a syndication of the maternal bond. Mm. <laughs> so that's, that's a quick attempt at interpretation. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and and the other the other development again. I don't know if this is something that was always there, but just it gets more highlighted, or I've just started to notice that the uh, the sl- uh, the slasher splatter films, the genre, they, it 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 seems to veer off, or I don't know if that's veering off is the right. Increasingly, it increasingly is employing these comedic kind of effects. Um, mm-hmm. not, not the CSI, uh, you know, shows, but, but like, um, yeah, specifically this, this kind of horror, uh, film, this like splatter slasher films. So what is it, did it always, what, what is the function? Like how did, how do these comedic effects actually function within these films or, and some of it, some of them are, are quite campy and I don't know if it's just a sort of mode of camp as mode of reading. I'm reading it as campy, but it's not meant to be campy. I think it is though. I think that there's a reflexivity. Um, Which so, films are you thinking about? Oh, I don't know. You know, the films, <laughs> I, I think it's more like the 80, you know, even, I, is Blair, would you consider, Blair Witch is not comedic, but it's, but it's, it's no, reflex, but you know, self-reflexive. I would say, I say the half-life of, of horror mm. um, tends to be comedy. Mm. So I'm already in the theater of Grand Guignol <laughs> in Paris, where they, since the late 19th century, they had these um, horror skits. Um they just um, uh, went ahead with it and alternated horror skits with comedy skits because uh, inevitably, because of the um, reliance on special effects in horror, as soon as that gets proves it all outdated, it becomes laughable. <laughs> so course, the, yeah. the nightmare on Elm Street films very quickly became either laughable or tiresome, even though in real time people rushed to see those films for the special effects. So I think, again, anything that relies on um, uh, the reality effect of a special effect, mm-hmm. special reality effects, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is going to lose the race against um, innovation and become outdated and laughable. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I know lots of vampire films that were camp, um, but I don't know a great many. I mean, there must be a few, but there must be very few well, <laughs> our films that were deliberately camp from the start, <laughs> but they quickly fall back into that position, huh. though. I see. Yeah, I, was, I guess I was thinking about back. the Friday the 13th, you know, these by the time you get to like whatever the third or fourth, they just seem. But maybe that's my that's just a mode of reading, or like you said, that they become dated, or they be they acquire that over time. Um, yeah, I think they quickly um, get used up. They're quickly exhausted. I think when for the first viewing, you know, the the group therapy that attended them took them very seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, in one of the Friday the Thirteenth films, I write about it in the book. Was it the fourth one when the little boy is the protagonist who, mm. whose hobby is making masks and he um, it looks anyway like he succeeds in killing Jason. The, uh, apparently, according to something I read, a New York audience on the seeing the film for the first time got up and hugged and, oh, God. <laughs> and, and screamed with jubilation. I mean, um, but the price for that kind of um, real time. Um, synchronicity, as it were, is that it becomes dated and laughable very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so oh, you know we've we're almost out of time, but um, I was wondering if uh, if you are if you're working on anything now or what the next if there's a next project or, or a current project that you'd like to tell us about. Um, well, that's always a problem with talking about a, a recently published book is that I'm already in the next one. <laughs> well, that's great. I've Tell done, us. I've done, I've done everything I could not to talk about oh. fantasy, but fantasy is my new project, oh. um, the, both the genre, but also um, it's um, 
um, reliance on wish fantasy or daydreaming, hmm. which um, I, I try to link to um, new digital mediation um, in an effort to answer the question why fantasy is the most popular genre and why it um, uh, prevails whenever it is mixed into any other genre. I would say the mixing of B genre anyway is the law right now, but fantasy always um, dominates. And I think that's because um, it has a certain um, uh, proximity to the wish fantasy um, nature of the digital relation. Mm, that's so that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, sounds great. Sounds really juicy. I'm, I'm, I can't wait. So you talk about <laughs> fantasy with, you know, a pH fantasy or? That's fantasy. the Kleinian view. Um, yeah. just to keep it simple, I'll, I'll probably um, keep it uh, F fantasy. But yeah, okay. I'm aware of the, <laughs> okay. the distinction. <laughs> just wondering which, if you were going to go there. But um Okay. I will refer. To, I will refer to the distinctions, but um, mm. I mean the the genre um, calls itself fantasy with an F, so I might as well follow suit. Mm -hmm. um, Tolkien, you know, try, came up with the name for the genre because he didn't want it to um, be uh, for children only. That's why he tried to move oh. away from the fairy story or fairy tale. Um, but as a result. Um, as you can read in his essay on the fairy story, he has to rush into a, a hyper-Christian reading of the fantasy genre to get a, 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 uh, away from the proximity to wish fantasy that he names with his naming of the genre. Mm. Um, he says that the reason fantasy genre is, the fantasy genre is powerful and the, the way it works is that there is one fantasy that is true, namely the Christian redemption. <laughs> <laughs> which you know is is wonderful because the the only fantasy I know that is true is the digital relationship, <laughs> right. which is which is why which is why fantasy is so um, so potent right now. Oh, okay. Well, on on that note, um, okay. Thanks. We should wrap up, but uh, we've been we've been talking to Larry Rickles about uh, his uh, brilliant new book, The Psycho Records. Larry, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me on it. And, and thanks to our audience for listening. Till next time.